everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot. Not really sure what episode it is now. I'm not six. keeping track. Ah, six. Uh, yes, six. episode six. Uh, here with my partner in crime, as always, Charles W. Carpenter III. And today we have Basil Hayden's Dark Rye, which has a ton of different stuff in it. Um, so it's a Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey blended with Canadian Rye Whiskey and Port. Um, so yeah, I don't really know much about this one. Do you have any, any additional facts to share, Chuck? Um, so just that I have, uh, noticed quite a bit of fanfare in my various whiskey social groups. Uh, people tend to really like this one and I'm not usually a Basil Hayden fan. Uh, this one also suffers from a low proof. I like a little heat or I think as we said before, the Kentucky hug, in my whiskeys, but uh, I'm intrigued. We we both like rye. Uh, this being a blend of ryes, I didn't realize. I guess they aren't uh, aging this in any port barrel or anything like that. I think they're just straight up putting no. port in here. So I don't know. It sounded a little weird. Um, yeah, but uh, but but interesting, and people seem to like it. Um, just rise. I just the only thing I've been able to glean on the internets about its mash bill is that it is at least the Kentucky rye is a high rye, making this an overall high rye whiskey. So I guess mm. that blend with port might be interesting. Yeah, I mean the way they're blending a ton of stuff, it's kind of the equivalent of like going to a restaurant at the drink machine and just being like, "Give me a little bit of each soda," right? Like, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, we used to call sometimes that the that's suicide. Good. Yeah, um, yeah. In in grade school. You'd go to the roller rink and, uh, yeah, go get your your sodas and mix them all together and call it a suicide. Yeah, so this is going to be extra watery for me because um, we got a new ice machine to make the, like, Sonic drive-in good ice. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's a real so, investment. So we've been enjoying that, but... Uh, because it's not always frozen, like it makes the ice and then it sits there and then it melts and like you can remake ice with it. Um, so mm. it's, we made it this morning. So it was a little melty and I've got a lot of water in my glass, but, um, you poured it anyway, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just, I'll pour some more in there. <laughs> that ought to even it all out. That's interesting. That's like the opposite effect of what they usually tell you with alcohols and ice. Like you want, that's why the big whiskey balls or, or like larger blocks or whatever are very popular because they don't water it down as much because it's like, you know, the overall surface area there melts slower when it's larger. But Yeah. Yeah. But theoretically, the more contact with the ice the whiskey has, the better However, yeah, if it starts to get really watery, that's not good. It's kind of a down. Well, yeah. so I'm uh, still utilizing my now solo Norlin glass for my taste uh, since I broke one last week. One, one homey down, one, one to go, I guess. We'll see. Um, <laughs> I'm only smelling it so far, and I know you've had a couple of tastes, but I'm getting a very, like, balsamic vinegar kind of smell to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm guessing that's the port. Um, there's a lot that of that in sense. the flavor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get a lot of port. This is, it's kind of like a wine, a dessert wine with a little burn to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got a lot of like, a lot of wine notes for sure. Was not expecting it to be that much 
thought it would be more whiskey with like a hint, but yeah, it's got a lot yeah. of porty whininess to it. Yeah, it's like port with a hint of whiskey. Mm -hmm. I get like the burn. I guess that's the rye kind of on the back of the throat. But uh, yeah, the balsamic vinaigrette, or not vinaigrette, because not a dressing, balsamic vinegar. <laughs> Very different things. Um, yeah, I get some syrupiness just in general. Maybe even like a little fruity kind of like apricot or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... It tastes kind of like a like a blackberry balsamic to me. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that too. You've now um, influenced me. And then, okay, I'm gonna throw throw a little weird one too, like a middle note I get that is kind of like leather, a little hmm. leather. Yeah, I'm not sure when I ate leather, but I, I have memories of of some sort of taste here, like yeah, of kind of worn in leather a little bit. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, this is definitely the most unique whiskey I feel like we've had so far. Um, yes, this is the most non-whiskey-like whiskey so far. I guess we did have the one with the maple syrup that was very peculiar to me, but even that was more whiskey than this. It just had a very musty, whatever, uh, mildewy flavor for me. This is like, I can drink it, but I don't really feel like I'm drinking whiskey so much. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, they fortify port and stuff with, you know, different alcohols. And it's like, they were like, you know, not enough alcohol. Let's just keep adding other stuff until it tastes <laughs> the way we want. And right. like they did a pretty good job. It's, it's pretty enjoyable. I would give it probably six tentacles, I think. I think I can agree with that. Yeah, I think that it is very drinkable. It just isn't. If I was craving whiskey, as I sometimes do, I'm not sure I would reach for this, but I can easily see this as being, you know, sometimes you'll have a bit of a digestif after mm -hmm. dinner and you might have a port or, you know, some other more uh, like desserty drink without being too sweet. Like this would be great in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I could imagine like, having people over for dinner and everyone has a little bit after dinner. Definitely good for that. Yeah. And it might be approachable for people who aren't, um, you know, like really into or comfortable with whiskey or maybe coming to it from wine, the wine world and trying it in this way. Yeah. And for people that aren't sure if they like rye, like there is that little bit of spiciness from the rye, but not nothing anywhere close to the ones we've tried so far. Yeah, I agree. As a uh, preview of, as a preview to to next week, um, we're gonna try some things that are in the bourbon realm, but high rye for bourbon. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't get the one for next week yet because they don't have it at this liquor store, so I have to go like across town to go get that, do a road trip. Yeah. There's a real <laughs> barrier to entry for you to, uh, to get alcohol. There's uh, in Virginia in particular, there's state run liquor stores and issues with delivery services. Do you have any delivery service? Can you drizzly there or no? You can get wine and beer from drizzly, but not on demand. It comes like the next day. Mm. So it's not super useful if you're like, Hey, I'm out of alcohol. I need some you're like, Nope. You can have it tomorrow. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm in the wild west where I can order alcohol on Amazon. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> or you go to the uh, grocery store or the, um, the drug store. And also available to me would be both cold medicine and whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I did find something interesting uh, at the ABC store, though. There was, uh, I think the brand is Old Oak, maybe. Have you heard of that? Um, not offhand. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either, but I frequently buy whiskeys that I just haven't seen before just because I haven't seen it. And not that it's necessarily new. I just hadn't seen that one. So they also had a ABC store Virginia like pick from a barrel, but it's a, I think, uh, somewhere in the Midwest whiskey. So it's not like it was a Virginia distillery that they easily went and picked. Like they sent someone out somewhere to pick a barrel. So um, I didn't get the barrel pick under the assumption that if you went to get it, there would not be the same barrel pick for you. So, yeah. So I did think of a way around this problem and it's common in the like whiskey groups and communities or whatnot to send samples. Um, so you get those little like glass Boston, um, I forget what they are, but they're, I think they're originally like a more chemistry thing and they're just little Boston bottles and then you can get like a shrink wrap for it too. So you just, you know, use a hairdryer and seal it that way and you can send, you know, a handful of them, uh, out through not USPS and (laughs) (laughs) just note, you can't send alcohol through USPS. Um, So yeah, like mailing samples or trading samples in that way is actually really common in whiskey communities. So it's sort of like if I had a bottle, you couldn't necessarily get, but we still wanted to do a a taster on it. That's kind of a way around it. We could Mm. pick a few things that are regional to you and regional to me, swap some samples, and then also, you know, do this in that way. Um, Usually get about two and a half ounces, give or take. So it seems like a decent amount for you to do your Pepsi challenge or just all on ice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That sounds reasonable. I guess as long as you're doing small amounts and not making money off of it, they don't worry too much about it. It's not like you have a big empire selling whiskey and all of those regulations. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can mail whiskey here in Arizona and then, yeah, if it's going from, private person to a private person in those amounts. I'm not sure what the legalities of, of that are specifically, but um, in the past, I've done that through the mail a, a couple of times and or just exchanging in person, obviously, is very simple too, you know. So if you were in a local whiskey group, pers- you know, uh, around you, that's another way to sort of share things you have, things they might have, and, and kind of vice versa. It's sort of fun too to mix it up there especially since we've accumulated a few additional bottles via this podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, there might be some you love or don't love and want to sort of try things before completely diving in. Like when you go to the ABC, there might be a few bottles that you've seen, but not sure that you want to invest in. It feels like every like micro distillery these days, like their opening price in the market is 60 to 80 dollars that's the problem i always have like oh i'd love to try it like where is there a tasting opportunity or did someone else buy it so that i can try it before i go there yeah i mean i kind of it may be a dumb assumption but i just kind of assume when it's that price that it's going to be pretty decent and Mm. usually it is i've had a couple that have been not but 
Yeah. I mean, if you're spending the money to have like nice packaging and like doing the research, doing good stuff, odds are it's going to be okay at least. Well, and I'm going to politely disagree on that point because (laughs) I will set like a baseline and let's say that like Buffalo Trace is a pretty good bourbon. You know, it's not great. It probably is the five or six tentacle in our scale. It's $25 a bottle. It has its moments of scarcity back and forth, but like there's been no massive price jump in that. And if I can get something that is that in that range on a regular basis for $25 versus $60. And like I said, there's like this sort of micro distillery baseline of like hitting 60. Cause I think that like 40 to 50 would even make it more approachable because sure they're smaller, different distribution. Maybe they're trying to really push in marketing or have a nicer bottle. So it's a presentation aspect. I totally get all of those things that might build in some additional to the cost, but still at the end of the day, if you want me to buy this, you know, if I want me to buy one bottle a month or something like that and become a more regular, um, then I got to wonder like how much better are you than Buffalo trace? That's sort of like what I ask. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, similarly, Oh, hold on. Oh, nope. I think we're okay. Yep. We're good. This call is being recorded. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully it's for recording quality purposes. Too. That's it. <laughs> I think it got upset cause I muted myself for a second and uh, I was like, Oh no, there's no input signal. Um, anyway, Yeah, like similarly, Sagamore for me is like, I think like around 30 bucks now. I think it used to be 40 or 50 or more, but I guess since it's been selling more and, you know, they can do more quantity, it's come down in price a little bit. Are they, and I forget because I always end up getting like barrel picks and some like older ones and whatever else. Like are, is that, is it their own distillate? Like their normal like you buy it off the shelf, is it sourced or are they actually distilling? Um, I'm unsure. I know that they don't do it in Baltimore yet. Like they keep saying okay. that it's, you know, they have the big distillery in Baltimore. You can do tours and things and like they do something there, but like I think a lot of it is still coming from the big guys in Kentucky or whatever. Um, so I, I believe it's an Indiana thing then, right? Like NG, yeah. MGP out of Indiana, which is another like alternative. Like you can provide the mash bill to MGP and have them do the distilling for you, but based on your own recipe. And that way you don't have your equipment cost up front. And then you might be able to like, you know, build capital into creating your own uh, stills and maybe building a building and all that kind of stuff. Like that happens. Um, yeah, I'm guessing because I know they do have a space that you can tour and stuff. So I'm guessing maybe what they do is the, someone else distills it and they maybe put it in barrels and age it at their place or something. Um, I'm not sure what the process is, but you know, when the pandemic isn't a thing anymore, I will go tour it and let you know what they're doing. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to put a pin in that one because I think for some whatnot discussion, I have some interesting information there. Okay. Concerning Um, the pandemic and your ability to tour publicly. Yeah. Well then let's move on to the next thing. Um, so yeah, for web, I guess this time we always have this big debate about 
the, you know, DevOps is this thing that is kind of growing in popularity and uh, you have, have to have a lot more specialization in these days than you used to. It kind of used to be like, you know, spin up an AWS server and that's kind of the extent of the job, but there's so many more tools coming out now. So, um, you know, kind of this big debate that, that Chuck and I have been having is, you know, how much time do you spend learning that sort of stuff? Should you hire dedicated DevOps people? Like, what is this landscape going to look like going forward? Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So in that sense, in general, I am an advocate for specialization. There are people that, you know, kind of feel like back and forth where, I mean, even beyond DevOps, you have, you know, do you need DevOps engineers? Do you want, you know, highly specialized teams? What does that take to accomplish your goals and, and all of that? I, I don't believe in the full stack engineer per se. I, I believe that there's a proficiency um, possible there, but I think that, you know, you end up at some point leaning in to specializing in some part of that. Like you have the ability to be a team member who can contribute or maybe you're doing, you have some personal projects or small projects that can get kicked off to a, to a particular size or degree. And that's fine. Like understanding and speaking a similar language, like that's highly valuable, but being like, if you're going into a mature product or a mature organization and there are very specific business goals that you need to accomplish that like there's, you know, there's this pyramid of needs that can occur there. Okay. So I think that DevOps is, is I think what it is, is a specialization in delivery and environment that understands the language of the engineers as well, but you're choosing a lane to, you know, to specialize in. And, uh, and part of that goes in uh, part and parcel with what are a bunch of new technologies. So like, there's a lot of ways to solve this. And one of the, you know, one of the things that Robbie has said to me and certainly interrupt me if I have taken it wrong, but um, is that, you know, you can spin up a project tomorrow, you can get it into a production environment pretty simply and you can understand basic configuration to make this happen. And, you know, in our space, because we're JavaScript consultancy and a lot of that has been around uh, SaaS applications, apps, that kind of stuff. But then we're seeing a little bit of gray and, and meld now and into what some of our clients have asked for or what's like being spoken about in our spaces, which has had us start to look more into um, delivery tools and um, the pipelines that get our stuff out there. And, and even just like, what are the technologies available, like versus go to AWS and spin up a server, right? Like that's a kind of a simple thing that can, that can spin up out of control because like entire businesses have come up out of this. Like, lots of businesses are basically like a nice interface over top of AWS, right? Because it's, it can yeah. get complicated. You know, there's identity and permissions and all these things that like start to make it challenging. And then, you know, they're now your ORM to speak into the database layer and get the information you need. Because now like as JavaScript engineers, 
we're having to face that a lot more. It's funny because like 10 plus years ago in my career, I was just like, as long as I never have to query a database, I'm pretty happy. Like this is a space I like being in. But now, uh, you know, and now I've had to confront that uh, over the last or more recent years, more and more often because those layers are being kind of reduced. And, and, and also like the gatekeepers to get me into that layer are, uh, you know, they're collaborators or I have direct access or like, you know, a lot of surprises there. So that is sort of my thinking around like, you know, DevOps and what, what is this specialty and, and what does that mean for us? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the big problem is like, when do you invest in it? Right. Because if you think you're going to have a huge app and your engineering team's going to be really large and you don't want your front end or back end or, you know, however many different types of engineers you have to have to learn all these other things and manage that, um, you're probably going to want someone to do DevOps, but you know, if you're starting and doing like a, a quick MVP and you have the budget for like two developers, you're probably not going to spend that budget on DevOps. So it's kind of like, you know, is there some kind of happy medium, I guess, where you can plan ahead and say like, okay, we're going to need this stuff. We have a plan for when we can introduce those people and how we can do things not totally incorrectly to start um, building toward that, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I do think you're right in that. I mean, like it's not, uh, it's not a barrier to entry, you know, there's tons of services available to us to like help us get a thing going. I think it's like recognizing the transition and, um, knowing when you're, you're like, or actually you want to get way ahead of when you're outgrowing that, that, you know, what is scalability of that situation? And I think a whole bunch of different things come into play in that. I think maturity of an application probably gets there. Uh, users, user needs, and probably cost to a certain degree because when some of these sort of just spin it up and you get it and you just give it some basic configuration and you don't ever have to worry about that. Well, like that's pretty great. But then when that scales up to some degree, because you're paying for that convenience. So then you start to think about like, do I direct that money into this, this like sort of obfuscation layer, or do I direct that money into talent that understands what's happening there a little bit and then can, grow this a bit more bespoke, like to give me what I need or tell me what's happening here and, and, you know, pull a few different levers along the way. And I think that that is the interesting prospect is that like questions around that demand around that is starting to, to bubble up. And that's a conversation I'm interested in, not because I think it's necessarily going to make a difference in our day to day for internal ship shape things, but that, clients that we're interested in, you know, they could need that. And that's something that we could offer. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming from the Ember world, I would be more inclined to do as much as we can to like build a tool that will make some of these choices for you and help you spin up all the things and, you know, not do it bespoke every time because that just feels like, you know, while you can definitely do a lot of consulting there and, you know, 
spend a bunch of hours billing clients to do that. Um, I feel like everyone would be better served with some defaults. It's kind of, it's kind of like, um, you know, react and before they were built frameworks on top of react, like next, like, you know, you've got react, do whatever you want, like use Webpack, use roll up, like whatever you feel like use a router. Don't like, you know, wild west of bespoke configurations for everything. And I think maybe we'll get there to where there's kind of like the, the framework of DevOps where you can have someone that is experienced in a certain DevOps type of framework that can kind of just like, okay, you know, we'll spin up this thing and they don't necessarily need to be experts in all of the little pieces. It's just kind of like, oh, I know how to fix it in the context of this framework. Yeah. And I think some of those, and I don't have enough exposure to speak to it intelligently. So I'll admit that I'll just tell you from what I have experienced myself, like within a small subset, uh, which is like, I'm starting to learn more and more about those tools. And, and so, um, I mean, I think, you know, we're both familiar with Docker and what that means in terms of containerization. And then there's the next layer of that. I'm going to say a dirty word, (laughs) Kubernetes, which is a cluster of containers, right? And then within that cluster, you're now controlling various uh, containers. You know, you have your Postgres, you have your uh, certification managers, you have, you know, Nginx, you have all these things that sort of are controlled within the cluster, which means now like your overall environment of containers is both separate, but together. And then you have this replicatable thing that you can put out there. So the whole idea of containerization like applies to this next level. But, you know, at the end of the day, if we're like, okay, yeah, but we're a JavaScript consultancy. Like, how does that play into a, for us? Like, yeah, I mean, it really does talk about a, you know, service level application that is a bit bigger than a lot of the things that we do internally. Like, I don't think it applies in that sense. Like, we're we're kind of like, we can easily get by probably on on the Jamstack and, and some sort of, you know, database as a service, like Fauna or something like that. And that, that could be easy and, and good until something like scaled, you know, out, way out of way out of bounds of what we would normally do. So, yeah, I, I agree there. Some of these things are happening, which is interesting. I am. It, it's kind of like the precipice of, hey, when you were learning Ember, like some of these. Wow. People are are working out and making some little logical choices because the next time you have to do this, you already know what, what tool set you have in front of you. Um, so Kubernetes is a thing. So now you want to, you want to manage some of your Kubernetes cluster as packages. Okay. So like NPM, there's this thing called Helm. Have you heard, I don't know if you've heard of Helm or not. This is recent. I've heard you mention it, but I, I don't know what it is. Uh, Helm and Hell were, have been similar for me recently, but, uh, yeah. So Helm is like kind of like a package manager for that. So you don't have to put together your specific instance of, uh, a certification manager, let's say, uh, some, you know, there's a standard around that. There's a published package of that particular image. So it's kind of like on Docker, if you have like, I want to install the Postgres 
image that's like the kind of like one. that and it's just sort of skipping over that step you don't need a docker image you'll just do the helm chart and it installs you know the published version of postgres boom you get that in gotcha. your cluster so it's essentially like npm for kubernetes and then there's some other layers there and i'm going to speak really ignorant of this thing because i've just this past week had some experience around it, which is Flux, which is kind of an automation tool on top of Helm, which was sort of like look at your Helm chart files and let, and start to do things like automate your deployments because it sees some changes that you have said like, hey, Flux, look for new hashes when I publish Docker images and update my Helm chart and then push that, like that kind of stuff. Um, they really so had an opportunity there to name it like gauntlets and just mm. build an armor suit out of all your tools. <laughs> well, <laughs> so what you have done is potentially, uh, name our next open source. I'm not sure how I can contribute to this in some way, but I will, uh, I'll try and figure out a way because I loved that game as a kid <laughs> gauntlet. I don't know if you ever played that or not, but. Uh, I can remember going to the local bowling alley to play video games. And that was one of the first ones where you could have four players at the same time. And then you are you familiar with the game gauntlet? I don't think so. Ah, bummer. So it was like kind of like a maze kill, you know, zombies and ghosts or whatever else like, uh, and you're over top and you choose like your character. And now I'm, trying from memory, but I think, you you know, you can choose the warrior or the wizard or whatever, kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons sort of thing. And then you're going through dungeons and collecting treasure, treasure and, and killing all the monsters. And yeah, I mean, I think the first games that I really played were like, or really the only ones, and I don't know why it's like Mortal Kombat type stuff. Like I mm. just want to hit all of the buttons as quick as I can, not knowing what I'm doing <laughs> and like, Oh, yeah, so, so yeah, Mortal Kombat was a cool one for that, like Street Fighter right before that, where you had some of the, like the combo moves or whatnot. Um, well, as a, a young kid in the eighties, I spent some time in arcades, go to the mall, go to the arcade, handful of quarters. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't quite the same <laughs> as you there, but, uh, you know, I definitely love arcades and wish there were more of them. There was a, uh, a place we went to in Texas that's like uh cidercade, I think is what it was called. Mm. And it uh it's a cidery that has like twenty different types of hard ciders and they have just a huge arcade and you just go and have cider and play games. Like it's super fun. It's kind of like a Dave and Buster's plus cidery or something. We used yeah. to have an arcade place downtown Phoenix here, but I um all of life has been wiped out for me, so I don't remember too much of anything, but also I haven't been very social lately for obvious reasons. So, but that's, uh, I'll put a pin in that one as well. Uh, <laughs> go find out if the arcade in Phoenix still exists. Yeah, I would guess that arcades are not doing well right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're trying to start an arcade in your home, maybe now's a good time to hit the marketplace. That is true. Would love to have something for my well i don't know where i would put it here but love the idea <laughs> in general yeah yeah in theory sounds good and it's probably a better marketplace than bicycles right now by the way impossible to get a bicycle without spending in a small car 
kind of budget. Yeah, Rob was trying to get one. And I think they waited like six months and they kept saying, like, it's coming in, it's coming in. And then they were just like, uh, it's not coming in. And then <laughs> so they like, they ordered like a back. less nice one from somewhere and like, you know, did whatever they had to do to get it sooner. But yeah, um, yeah the, the market has been crazy for that. We actually got uh, electric bikes like mm. a few months ago, I guess. Oh, wow. I don't know. I do have an electric scooter. Um, but when, so my wife has a bike and we have one of those little trailers for the kids and it's kind of nice and we've gone on a couple of rides, but I don't know, I'm riding the scooter next to her who's pedaling and like, I don't know, it feels like cheating. Ideally, what I would like is a bike where we could do these nice family rides and then from time to time, maybe I could take it on some easy trails for the, you know, some fitness or fitness sounds like a, a distant word in my past, but <laughs> I'd like to bring it to the forefront at some point. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing we want to do is get like a bike rack for the the car and, you know, be able to take it and do like a biking camping trip kind of thing. Like throw mm-hmm. a tent in a backpack and like bike for 20 miles or whatever in the camp. Yeah. There's a word for that. Um, oh, bike packing, bike packing. Oh, right. I heard this yes. a bunch. Yes. So do you have electric bikes that are off-road capable? Because I have my my wife's uncle, he has a full suspension mountain bike that is also electric, which kind of um, feels like ch- cheating, but also <laughs> seems really cool. Yeah, it's I wouldn't say that they're they're like light terrain capable. Like we we're not mountain biking, but like an unpaved road or something that's relatively flat and straight or whatever. Like no wilderness biking and then camping, but like there's yeah. um uh. Like the CNO CNO Canal, is that what it is? It's like around here. There's like some big trail up like a big river and canal system that goes like fifty miles or something. So hmm. we're thinking about doing that and biking up that and camping somewhere. Yeah, I mean that sounds really fun. Yeah, an escape. Yeah, yeah, we've done a couple camping trips, but um, it's tough because. Well, so we brought the dogs once and then another time we didn't. So it's just, you know, what do we do with the dogs if we're gone for a weekend when no one can come over and watch them because it's the pandemic. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think you're in a situation there where you have to kind of take them to someone because yeah. even like automatic feeder takes you so far, I guess, if they have access to the back or whatever on their own to a degree, but you are still kind of in the city. So that's not overly safe yeah. or so well, we you we typically just have like if we know we need to be gone for a weekend or something we'll try to have my parents come watch them and my parents just finished their vaccination round so mm. they're good to come visit more now i think um so that'll be nice <clears throat> well that is a excellent segue um so here the eligibility i think we're at a we call it the 1b uh there's still frontline workers and everyone and older is eligible, which contrary to popular belief, I am not yet 55. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, my wife yesterday had, well, so prior to yesterday, she had heard that vaccination sites have actually had a lot of cancellations and no-shows and daily, oftentimes they will have extras out of this. And so she took a drive 
to one of the sites yesterday and lo and behold, it is true, or at least was true that day at that location. And she was able to get her first round and then now she's automatically teed up for round two. Um, My plan about an hour or so after we end this podcast is to do a similar thing. I'm going to go make a drive now. Well, because when she pulled in, she was going to check it out and she pulled in and they actually closed the gates behind her. So she couldn't call me to come and also get some. They were like, unless he's directly behind you, sorry, we're closing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give that a shot today and and actually (laughs) pun intended, uh, try to get myself past that as well. And then, you know, be teed up for round two which would be great. I don't really know what real freedom that gives me. I guess some like reduces a little mental anguish, but you know, we're supposed to still practice social distancing and masking and things like that. But I guess I won't die. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the big thing is that all of the vaccines basically get rid of the chance of like death or serious consequences. So like you might still get sick, but you know, that would make me feel more comfortable. Like I would do a potential plane trip somewhere or like whatever. Um, I'm not going to stay around people more than I have to, but, um, I don't feel like everywhere I go, I could potentially die anymore. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. There's a layer of relief there. And, uh, I mean, I have asthma. It's not like, you know, debilitating or anything like that, but it does make you wonder when it's, uh, a lung attacking virus that you know, could be at risk. And then of course we're concerned with our own parents. Sarah's grandparents are still alive and we would certainly not like to change that. They, hmm, which makes me want to, I know that they had their first round, which is good. I don't know if they've finished their second or not, but I think they're in that process as well. So yeah, just, just to, to know that it saves you from that is, is a sigh of relief, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It still remains to be seen if we'll be back to totally normal anytime soon or not, but Mm. getting closer. Yeah. I I read, um, they had a bunch of extras like around here at a couple specific doctor's offices, like different Anova hospitals or something would get, you know, a huge shipment and then they didn't have enough people in their area that were signed up, I guess. So they would just be like, Mm. Hey, general patients, like we have a ton of these if you want some and um, yeah, I mean, I contacted my doctor's office and they were like, no, that's not a thing we do. So, uh, I, I should, uh, I had someone recently share a link and, you know, pardon me if I didn't actually share it on with you or, or you know, in general and maybe our main Slack channel. But, uh, so if you're willing to take a little bit of a drive, I guess there's a website that collects data from things like CVSs and whatnot where they're not getting an influx of appointments, but they, they do have the inventory and, uh, gives you a bit of information about that and that allows you to sort of lock that down. So, Hmm. yeah, I mean that, that can be interesting to look at, but we should probably stop tangenting on the virus, I guess. People don't want to listen to us talk about the pandemic. I feel like (laughs) that could be an episode unto itself that, some listeners could choose to skip if they want. Wait, there's no whiskey in this one. That's all I listen to. <laughs> I have a feeling it's somewhat the opposite. People skip the whiskey talk and listen to either the tech and or the whatnot. I think it's a mix because I have certain friends in various groups of interest. And yeah, I tell them like, 
you probably don't care beyond the first 10 minutes. Mm. And then other people where I'm saying, oh, yeah, oh, oh, you're not interested in whiskey. Well, you could probably move on to the other part. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So we're at about 40 minutes. How much time do you need to talk about Porsches? Should we save that for next time? <laughs> <laughs> we could do a teaser. We could do a five-minute teaser. Yeah, sure. All righty. So I'm going to start it with this. Porsche's good. Mustangs, <laughs> Mustangs bad. So, well, I mean, relative terms, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and we'll we'll go into more detail next time. I guess we'll slate that up as our whatnot for next time. But yeah, for those that don't know, I had a Mustang for a while, and I've since decided that like. I don't care if I go fast or not. I just want cars that can hold things and I've gotten <laughs> like various SUVs and whatnot since then because yeah, but more utilitarian wherein I'm experience driven. I, I've had some old and new cars. Um, many of them German, not all though. And yeah, I, I have, I think as a kid on really gleaned onto the Porsche experience. So, you know, I'm sure there's a level of attainment to a degree there, but even when I probably couldn't afford them, I opted for like some older Porsche and I would work on them myself. And um, so, yeah, so this whole experience of like the sound and the feel and like German engineering, uh, I don't know. I've bought into it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely continue more next time, but you know, that's another thing too, is now that it's going electric, you don't get as much of the sound and the feel and, and all that. But yeah, I think we should just pin it there and talk about it next time. Cause I have a lot of different compare and contrast and thoughts and feelings on, you know, American versus not and, and different car brands and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, that sounds great. I think uh, there you go. There's our teaser of the whatnot for next episode is around um, around cars and just automotive in general and our feelings there. I mean, I'm a car guy cr across the board. I appreciate many of those things. Yeah, we'll actually be doing the podcast from a garage where I'll be doing an, a swap on an exhaust system. No, that's I not can't happening. Wait. But <laughs> can't wait. I was going to say, like, first of all, do you have a garage? Second of all, did you get a lift? Because I have opinions. <laughs> no. Well, yes, we'll, we'll go into that next time. So, yeah, thanks, everybody. Um, definitely join us next time if you're into cars. And I think we're doing, um, what was the whiskey that we were getting for next time? Uh, it is a wild turkey. It's not rare breed. It's Kentucky Spirit, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah. So if you're into wild turkey cars, you know, whatnot, definitely join us next time. If you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, please subscribe. It really helps us out. If you'll follow us and you know, share with your friends and uh, hopefully uh, get this thing out there to some more people and keep getting good content for you guys. Boop, 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 boop.